beginning in verse 1 of John 7, reading out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, which could also be known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which also could be known as the Feast of Ingathering. So the Feast of Booths was near. So his brothers said to him, move on from here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to be known publicly. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. I'm going to keep going for a little bit, but we'll stop in verse 5 this morning. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Now, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word, that you would minister to us, that you would give us insight, give us understanding, and, and bring to us clarity that which you desire to speak to our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I almost don't feel comfortable unless I have four Bibles around me. Now, you ought to see when I go to the, you ought to see when I go to the, uh, no, I'm kidding. I don't carry them with me everywhere I go. Plus, I always have one in my cell phone, but my cell phone's on strike, I think. So, I'm finding out that people are texting me and I'm not getting them. So, um, Hopefully I fixed it, but I doubt it. This is an interesting chapter. Um, not that verse or chapter 6 was not interesting. Chapter 6 was very interesting. Uh, this discourse on the bread of life. And it tells us in verse 1, it says, after these things. Now that is a phrase in the Greek. It's the Greek word metatauta. Uh, you find it in various places, particularly John likes to use it. It's not so much a chronological reference as it is a reference to now we are into something different. Now we are in a different setting. Um, it's interpreted, by the way, as chronological by some who interpret the book of Revelation uh, that way, but that's not necessarily the case in how this word is being used. Uh, it simply means now we have moved on to something else. Um, so after these things, in other words, after the bread of life discourse, and remember, uh, it all started with Jesus feeding the 5,000. He feeds them. He's out in the wilderness area on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. They get in the boat. Uh, that is, the disciples get in the boat. Jesus leaves, uh, lets them go ahead. Uh, he walks on water and basically comes to shore somewhere around the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And then everybody wants to know how we got here and um, 
there, there becomes this discussion in, in really kind of ensuing into really kind of an argument where Jesus is declaring himself as the bread of life. He says that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and if you don't, you have no life in you. Uh, and because of that, what happened is, is it, it said, it tells us that because of this, many people stopped following him. And they stopped seeking after him. And, and verse 60 of chapter 6 says, so that many of his disciples, when they had heard this, this statement is very unpleasant, who can listen to this? Uh, and even his disciples were complaining, whether that refers to the 12 or not, I, I'm not positively sure. Um, but then it ends with the confession of Peter that we looked at last week. To whom shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom shall I go? And uh, I think there could be volumes of books written on that question slash statement that Peter gave to Jesus. And so they're in the region of the Galilee that's north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. Um, and it says he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. These Jews probably refer to um, the Jewish leaders. Probably. We see this used in, in chapter 6, verse 41, and in chapter 6, verse 52 as well. Probably referring to the Jewish leaders, but... But we do see kind of uh, one of the themes that kind of runs throughout the book of John is that Jesus is always at odd with the Jews. And uh, we're going we're to unpack that a little bit. I'm going to probably share a few things regarding that next week that are my opinion. Your mileage may vary. Uh, you might not agree with what I'm going to share, but I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll change my mind. I've got seven days, right? i got six and a half. Anyway, so we're, we're good to go on that. But... But uh, I, I'm thinking through this uh, of, of Jesus came and they did not receive him. He came to his own. For, uh, John chapter 1 tells us he came to his own, referring to the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be the sons and daughters of God. And so... You have these Jews that are seeking to kill him, and so he's staying out in the country. He's not going into the big city of Bend, right? Right? He's he's Culver, right? <laughs> had to had to go there, didn't I? Or he's he's out by Metolius somewhere. You know, he he's kind of in the in the back country, um, and he's doing ministry. But it tells us that the feast of the Jews. Feast of Booths was near. And the brothers are telling him, you need to go into Judea. Um, I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but first I want to talk a little bit about the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It was the last of the seven yearly feasts, right, and it took place in the seventh month of 
the month of Tishri, T-I-S-H-R-I. And the month of Tishri was a very, very busy month. Um, and in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out a little bit of reading uh, of this from the Old Testament. Uh, the month of Tishri was a very busy month because on the first day of the month of Tishri was the Feast of Trumpets. It was also known as their civil. This is what's strange. I haven't, there's not a lot of out there that I've found to really address this, but in a sense, the Jews had a civil calendar and they had a religious calendar. Uh, in the spring, it was the month of Nisan, uh, which was the first month of the religious calendar. In the fall, the month of Tishri was the first month of their civil calendar. And so the Feast of Trumpets was given in anticipation of the new year. And so you would they would actually blow the trumpets because they would have they would have those that uh, they were watching the particular stars in the evening to know when the, when the actual date occurred. Remember, they didn't have a calendar, and they didn't have an iPhone to carry around that gives them fits all the time, right, or, or a Samsung, whatever phone they carry. Um, so they had those that were watching. Trumpets really speaks of this idea of watching for the return of Christ, I think. Then on the 10th, it... it also on the Feast of Trumpets, it was a signal to get ready. It was a signal to get ready for what? To get ready for the Day of Atonement, which was on the 10th of Tishri. The Day of Atonement, which is really the only day in the Jewish calendar where Jews were commanded to fast. And it was a day of fasting. It was a day of mourning. It was a day of repenting. That was the day that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He only did it once a year, but he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would first offer a blood sacrifice for himself to purify himself. And then he would offer a second blood sacrifice for all of the people. It was a high holy day. It was a day of mourning, day of repentance, day of fasting. And you had from the Feast of Trumpets, you had nine days, if you will, to get ready for the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th of the month, the 15th of the month of Tishri, you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles actually went seven days, and then they added another day, which is really, you see that with Passover. Uh, what I mean by Passover is I'm including with Passover the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is in the spring. Have I lost anybody yet besides myself? Uh, so far, we're so good. Okay. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 says the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel saying the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord and on the first day there shall be a holy convocation you shall do no customary work on it 
For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. And these are the feasts, verse 37, of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to the holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, and everything on its day. The burnt offering was interesting because the, the, the burnt offering was an offering of consecration. Because in the process of a burnt offering, they would take the entirety of the animal and they would place it on the altar and they would burn the entire animal. Completely burn it to a crisp, saying that everything I have, all that I am, is offered to you, Lord. That's what it symbolized. And so you have the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. It's the same feast. Exodus chapter 23, verse 14. I will read it to you. I have it in front of me. It says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Verse 15 says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. And then it talks about in verse 16, you shall uh, keep the, the feast of the harvest. Uh, that is uh, referring to Pentecost. The feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you've sown the field. And thirdly, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Because it was, while it began at the beginning of their civil year, it was also at the end of their agricultural year. So, uh, so the Feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, and then it goes on to say in verse 17 of Exodus 23, three times in the year all your male shall appear before the Lord God. It says the same thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 13. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three feasts were mandatory feasts for every male to come and appear before the Lord, which meant you would go where the tabernacle was. Then eventually it became you would go where what? The temple was, which is in, was in Jerusalem. So it was a, what's called a mandatory feast. And so that, if you've read ahead in this at all, you will see that Jesus actually goes to Jerusalem for this feast. But he goes in secretly. We'll, we'll touch on that uh, next week. Uh, and his brothers want him to show himself to the world. And what a great opportunity, what a, a great time is at one of the mandatory feasts whereby all the Jewish males were supposed to come and present themselves to the Lord. What's interesting about tabernacles is it celebrates the harvest the ingathering. It celebrates the finish of the harvest. And, and so there was a lot to celebrate, particularly if there was a bumper crop 
uh, they would come and they would, they would, it would be a time of feasting, a time of celebration, because the harvest had been complete. It's also a time of remembrance. So it has a present-day application, if, at least for them, right, at the end of harvest. And it had a time of remembrance because they, for seven days, they were to dwell in these temporary dwelling places called, guess what, booths or tabernacles or tents. And essentially, they would, they would make like a lean-to structure that they would actually live in for a week, right? Kind of like a dry camping scenario. And they would actually have an open area for their roof so they could see the stars at night. And, and um, so they, essentially, they would go on a week-long camp, family camp, one way to put it, right? And it was in remembrance of the provision that God provided in the wilderness. Twofold, celebration of the harvest, provision that God had provided previously in the wilderness. We're, we're seeing this pattern. I didn't even think about this until just now, but we're seeing this pattern early in our study in the book of Psalms. We saw that in Psalm 4 when we, we got through, what, two verses last week. But anyway, um, we see that in Psalm 4 we're, we're David is crying out to God saying, you've done it in the past, you please do it again. You've heard me in the past, please hear me again. I'm remembering that which you have done. I am bringing that remembrance to you, not like God forgets, but we do. Because we get overran by the present, don't we? And particularly, they were to celebrate the harvest even if it was a poor harvest. Still the feast of gathering, whether you gather a lot or gather a little, right? I'm remembering, Lord, what you've done. I'm asking you to do it again. And of all things, John, the, the, the masterpiece of John here in his writing, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, Right after the bread of life discourse, which he tied directly to what? The manna in the wilderness. The next chapter, well, it wasn't a chapter. Anyway, the next section that he writes in, he's talking about an incident that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering the manna that God had provided during the wilderness wandering years. And the, the, the thing is, the thing is about the wilderness. I wasn't planning on going here, but this, this thought's really kind of burning into me right now. What, I love the wilderness experience, particularly if somebody else has gone through it, right? Because it's hard. It's really, really hard hard but it's I think foundational I think that's part of what 
The Lord is teaching them, teaching us in, in response to we celebrate tabernacles or they celebrated tabernacles, remembering what God had done in the wilderness. Because even though the time in the wilderness was not an easy time, and it was a 40-year, 38-year actually, that actually 40, but it was almost two years by the time they refused to go into the promised land the first time. So they ran around for another 38 years before they were able to go into the wilderness, right? But it was a death march. Everybody 20 and older had to die off. And being that some of those folks lived long, a long life, a lot of them died early. A lot of the ones who were younger at that time, they probably died very early. Died in their 60s as opposed to dying in their 80s or 90s or 100s. Moses was, what, 120 or so when he passed away? It was a very long, slow death march because all the older generation had to die off so God could take the younger generation and lead them into the promised land. That was one of the purposes of the wilderness wanderings, one of the primary purposes of the wilderness wanderings. Because of their unbelief, Hebrews is very clear on this, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, because of their unbelief, unbelief they did not enter in. On a personal level, our wilderness wanderings is a time of incredible testing, a time of incredible unbelief, and a time of incredible dependency upon the provision of God, even though we don't even realize it. And it, it, it seems that that in the times of the wilderness, it seems like there are times that we are just slugging it out. In such a manner, in such a fashion, that we might not even be aware that he is with us. But it becomes foundational in our walk. I wish it could be different. I wish it could be done differently. I wish that we could just be happy little Christians, right? Go to church on Sunday, even if we're really good, we show up on a Wednesday night. We just read the Bible and pray and we grow, but that's, 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 that's not how God does the works in our souls. And he gives so many illustrations, particularly in the Old Testament, the refiner's fire. Talking about us being as precious metal, but the precious metal becomes precious because it gets put in the furnace and you burn all the impurities out of it. And to be put in the furnace hurts like the theological place of eternal punishment. It hurts. It's painful. It's hot. It's difficult. but it's part of our calling. So we look back on what God has done. And we remember the good. We remember the bad. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. And we remember the ugly. I, I, I've told you the story a few times. There was a man, he's moved away, but, but he was pastoring in a, 
recovery ministry, and then everything blew up, went sideways, and he kind of tried to go to another church, and they didn't, they didn't want him. I'm not going to get into the reason why. So he stopped going to church, and out of the blue, he calls me years later, years later. And uh, so we met, and, and he says to me, I, I've been in the wilderness, you know. Welcome to the club, right? And he felt really bad about it. You know, I, I haven't done anything. I've just been in the wilderness. I said, well, you ever thought that the wilderness times are sometimes the most redemptive times in our life? And it was his, his reaction was, I loved his reaction. It was, he just sat there and kind of just almost like froze and goes, that makes sense. You know, so, you know, he was acting like he had stepped out of the club, that he'd walked away from the faith, and he hadn't. But he, he went through a very trying time. That's what they're remembering in Feast of Tabernacles. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So along come Jesus' brothers. Different views on this. I won't entertain what I don't believe so much on this this morning. I think brothers means brothers. To me, that makes the most sense in a lot of different ways. So James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, are among them. And they're not believers it tells us at this point. They do not believe in him. It tells us in verse 5. Not even his brothers believed. So here you have these unregenerate Jews trying to speak to the Lord of the universe about what he's supposed to do. So they tell him, move on from here. Get out of Culver, right? <laughs> Get out of the back country. Move on from here and go into Judea so that your disciples may also see your works, which you are doing. Obviously, he was going around the countryside continuing to do his miracles, continuing to bless people, continuing to heal people. But remember... At the end of chapter 6, many followed him no more. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. He had thinned out his crowd. They, so what's motivating the, the brothers? And why did they need to give Jesus a consult? You know what I find fascinating? I, this, this to me is really fascinating because the brothers had known Jesus their entire life. They grew up with him. They'd been in the same household with him. Jesus was the oldest, remember? So when they came along, he was already in place. So they see that his following is starting to wane. They tell him to go into Judea. 
It's like they want to be as promotion managers for the uh, fall 32 Jesus tour of Judea. You know, it, it, it's, it's almost like that, that's what he's, like what they're thinking here. Why were they so concerned? They didn't believe. Did they possibly hope that he would finally get this Messiah badness out of, you know, get it out of the system and come back and work in the family business? Was that what they were hoping? I don't know. It's an honor-shame culture back then. Anything that your family did either brought you honor or brought you shame. And be, if, if Jesus was going to be recognized as this important prophet, it was going to bring incredible social standing to the entire family, including the brothers. So here you have here with the brothers a, a different version, but a similar version of what Peter told Jesus in Matthew 16 when, when, when it tells, when after Peter makes this incredible confession, there art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? It's a Caesarea Philippi, which I believe is a separate incident than John 6, although they're, they're similar. And, and from that time, Jesus talks about how he's going to be going to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the chief, uh, to the priests and the, and, and the scribes and evil men, and they're going, to, they're going to kill him and have him crucified. And so Peter steps up and he tells Jesus, not so, Lord. The oxymoron of the book of Matthew. Not so, comma, Lord. Hmm. There's a contradiction there. And Jesus, Matthew 16, verse 23 says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I was actually going to close with this. I'll probably come back to it again. Not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You did not have an understanding of the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. It was an honor, shame, culture. If you go to Judea and you are uh, and go into Jerusalem and you are recognized as a prophet in Jerusalem, then all those people who have left you will come back and they will follow you again and you'll have a mega following. That could have been one of the reasons why they were motivated to, to force him to, to take this stance. which would have been normal in the thinking of that culture at that time. But the problem here, and it's given to us in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. The problem with unbelief Because they were attempting to force the hand of Jesus before his time. Because they did not understand the things of God, rather they had on their mind the things of men, the things of humanity, the things of the world. 
They tried to force the hand of the Lord. Don't you hate it when God's timing is different than yours? Boy, I sure do. It is difficult. See, this is, ta- this is wilderness again. It is difficult to wait upon God when you want all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to move forward into something, but you do not sense God's leading, you do not sense God's timing, and you do not sense his calling. But there are times that we get so impatient, we don't care. We're going to be like the bull in the china shop. And all the china gets broken. They attempted to force his hand. And that's the problem of unbelief. Were, were they like the crowd? Were they just wanting to see more miracles? They probably did not partake of the bread and the fish when the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe they did. I don't know. Did they hear how good it was and were wanting to try some of it themselves? Or as I said earlier, were they just thinking that Jesus, if he goes to Jerusalem, he'll fail and maybe he'll finally come to his senses and come home? They didn't believe in him. Or perhaps they were completely unaware of why Jesus was walking in the Galilee and not going back to Judea, which we read, again, because the Jews, verse 1, were seeking to kill him. Perhaps they were unaware of that. Obviously, they did not see the whole picture. That's real clear. We rarely, if ever, see the whole picture, don't we? And it seems that a lot of times in life we're walking through situations that don't quite make sense and we're just holding out hope against hope that one day it will begin to make sense and we will begin to understand and we will have a sense of, I hate the word, but I'm going to say closure, which is important for some people. I don't know that it, that's even attainable. A lot of times. They didn't see the whole picture. We don't see the whole picture. See, the thing about unbelief, and I thought about this. I'll tell you a story about this in just a second. But unbelief really can yield fruit of bad advice. Not always, but most of the time. It can yield the fruit of bad advice. Or even worse, giving advice when none has been asked. 
Now, I went through here and I read this pretty carefully. And I did not read. So Jesus turned to his brothers and saith, I'll go with King James on you. What shall I do? Should I return to Judea? Or should I remain in the Galilee? Giving advice when you haven't been asked. That's really prevalent, isn't it? And I think sometimes when we are giving advice and we haven't been asked, we, we, we run the risk of speaking out of turn. Unbelief can, be, can yield bad fruit, the fruit of bad advice or an even the bad fruit of giving it when it hasn't even been asked. Because in reality, unbelievers rarely have any sense of anything spiritually. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, again, these things are spiritually discerned and the natural man cannot understand them. They are foolishness to him. I, years ago, we lived in a town called Dixon. Who names a town? Anyway, um, it's on Interstate 80. And the pastor of the church we were attending, I get the town was so boring. Small town politics were interesting there, okay? So he decided to enter. Everybody's running for city council, right? So he decides to meet with every candidate to see who he's going to throw his support for. I, I, I learned from that. I don't, I don't bother. Okay, but anyway, that's just me. So he met with this one guy. This guy was not a believer. I knew him a little bit, didn't know him real well. I knew he was not a Christian. He was a very spiritual guy. He was big in, he was big in AA. But he, he wasn't a Christian. But he, he's talking to our pastor, and, and, he, and, he, and he, I guess he just couldn't resist himself. He wasn't asked. He goes, Let me tell you how to build a church. You know, he, he, he decides he's going he's gonna to impart some wisdom, knowledge, and understanding upon our pastor, you know, and trying to give him this advice. Let me tell you how to, how to build a church here. Um, I don't think the guy ever took his advice. I know that eventually he left that town. He's down in Southern California now today. But, but. This guy didn't, I remember hearing some of his advice and it was all, it was, it almost felt kind of a cross between uh, what pyramid scheme type of marketing and mass marketing. And it was just, no, unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain, right? So, they did not understand, the brothers, unbelievers, do not understand, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I'm still reading these every month. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But they want Jesus to go and show himself to the world to make a name for himself. I remember a friend of mine, he was, had a distributorship in Portland. Uh, well, actually, yeah, it was in Portland. But they wanted him to go across the river and, and, and build up this huge distributorship on the other side of the river in the Washington side. 
And they said, yeah, Dave, you, you got to go over there and go there and make a name for yourself, right? I'm like, make a name for yourself? For goodness sake, you're a paper distributor, you know? What, what kind of glory is in that? You know, it, it didn't make any sense to me. But it, they, they were trying to appeal to his ego. Because unbelievers don't normally fear the Lord. So they do not have the beginning of wisdom. They do not have the beginning of knowledge. But the brothers wanted him to go and promote himself. And it's very similar in, in some respects, not only to what Peter said of Jesus, as I, we talked about in Matthew 16, but also the temptations that are in Mac, or Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Particularly when Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, up on the high pinnacle of the temple, which had to be done supernaturally, by the way. And he says to Jesus, cast yourself down. Using the passage, for he will give his angels charge concerning, to, concerning you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And this idea of this temptation to want to do something spectacular, want to do something marvelous, want to do something that is attention-getting, so that you'll be recognized. The, con the thing about human nature is what you do to draw them, you have to maintain to keep them. We see this in verse 3. It says uh, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. And here's the problem with that. And, and this is not as simple as I'm going to make it sound. So let the buyer beware, okay? So Jesus goes around in his ministry, earthly ministry, and he does miracles, and it attracts people. See, we, we've talked about this already in the Gospel of John. And even in John chapter 2, it tells us that, that, that he did many miracles uh, but he did not give himself to those who believed in him because he knew what manner of person they were. Because if you are simply attracted to miracles, you will need more miracles to stay attracted. Because then your relationship with God is based on the miracles. Now, I don't have a problem with miracles. Does God do miracles today? Yeah, I think he does more miracles than we're even aware of. But I don't feel that we as a church need to make that our primary focus. I know churches that do make it their primary focus, and almost inevitably they get into weirdness. But there is a place for the supernatural. I'm trying, to work, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to walk a fine line here, okay? God still does miracles today. God still heals today. I still pray for healing today.
but I want to be grounded in his word. And so if my faith is completely based on what I see, what I experience, I tend to think that that's a faith that lends itself to being genuine, but rather superficial. If the two can exist side by side. I just threw a huge paradox at you, didn't I? For those of you who are still awake. Anyway. Um, genuine but superficial. And the thing is, we see this in, the, in both Testaments. We are called to believe. We are called to believe so that we might see. What the brothers may have been asking Jesus to do is show me and I'll believe. If you do this, then I'll believe. Now, why I said this is really a thin ice scenario, because what probably caused the brothers to believe? Think about it. The resurrection. They saw him resurrected in the flesh, okay? Which is a huge miracle. Huge miracle. A huge sign. A huge one. It's because of the resurrection that we have the faith that we have. Even though we have not experienced seeing Jesus resurrected in the flesh, we believe in it. And Jesus even said, blessed are those who, who believe yet having not seen. And today we are called, I think, primarily to have a faith that believes yet having not seen. It's a fine line. But it goes back to what, again, Augustine, when he talked about the understanding of Scripture. He said, I believe in order that I might understand. I mean, we, we, just, we just went through John 6. That, that was a rocky road, man. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What's he talking about? I think this is what I think he's talking about. I'm not sure, but I'm going to stick with it rather than being verse 66 of chapter 6. Interesting. Chapter 6, verse 66. I won't go there. But they no longer believed in him because they didn't get it. They were in the wilderness and they gave up. So do you see how these, these two chapters, really these two stories, how well they tie together? Remembering the time of the, of the wilderness and to not give up. Remembering the time of the wilderness and to not force God's hand. Remembering the time of the wilderness and to be still and to know that he is God. It's wonderful to hear about on a Sunday morning. It's hard as anything to live out on a Tuesday afternoon. Amen? But that is what God has called us to do. And who 
God has called us to be. We walk by faith, not by sight. Amen.